Welcome to the Recovery Project. My name is Jody Butts and I'll be your moderator today. Today we'll be discussing rural health care. It is definitely facing more and more challenges with shortages of doctors and nurses. Provinces like Saskatchewan are innovating and providing health services remotely with the help of technology. COVID-19, of course, has entered the building and is providing unique challenges of its own. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Tom McIntosh from the University of Regina, Tracy Zambori, RN from Saskatchewan Union of Nurses, and the Honorable Brian Gallant, former Premier of New Brunswick, to discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on rural healthcare and the future of healthcare delivery in rural Canada. This is not our first discussion with the Recovery Project, so if you'd like to see more of our discussions, you can find them at recoveryproject.org. Without further ado, I will put the first question to Professor McIntosh and invite you to orient the audience to rural healthcare. What makes it different than urban healthcare and what are its unique opportunities? Wow, what makes it different? Almost everything about it, it seems, makes it different. I think you could generally characterize it as focus now almost entirely on the provision of primary care and primary health care. Uh, we have uh, reduced access to all sorts of services in, in rural parts of the country. Of course, as uh, people may or may not know, uh, Saskatchewan closed and converted 50 uh, rural hospitals uh, a few decades ago. Um, none of those things are going to return to either rural Saskatchewan or to other rural parts of, uh, of the country. And so the, the biggest thing I think we always think about uh, rural healthcare is that challenge of linking the services that are still in, in, uh, in rural communities into the broader healthcare system that is increasingly concentrated in, uh, in urban areas for all sorts of demographic and, and technological reasons that, are, um, that, have that have only grown and magnified, I think, over the last uh, few years. Um, the other thing I would sort of say just to sort of end this is um, I think w the biggest challenge for me when I think about rural health care is it is all it is ignored by governments. It is only an issue when there's a crisis and when there's a problem, when an emergency room is shut down or, or what have you. And we've just gone through that in, again in, in, in rural Saskatchewan. We have never had a serious conversation between governments and rural residents about what they can and should expect in, in their healthcare and how best to link and coordinate healthcare across that rural-urban divide. So I'd leave that there. Thank you. So huge disparities. And Tracy, real recruitment challenges as well when it comes to healthcare professionals. It is a big issue. And we see that in the rural areas, there has been in this last while just a push for physician uh, recruitment. But we do know that, you know, for, for healthcare, and, and you won't be surprised when I say this as the president of the Saskatchewan Union of Nurses, that we really have a vision that registered nurses could fill the gap between uh, urban and the rural setting. 
we would, we have suggested and will continue to suggest and anyone who's listening in policy and education that registered nurses should be graduating with what we call advanced authorized practice. That's the bottom floor they come out with and then have that two to three years experience where they would become nurse practitioners. And it is that set of registered nurses with all the support staff around them, like a licensed practical nurses, special care aides, and a doctor hovering that doesn't have to be in every community, uh, would fill the gap between urban and rural. We, we know that we, we have the evidence and the research to support that. And we know that, that it can work. Now for a while uh, in the you know, mid 2000s, you know, 2008 and in around there, there were a number of incentives for registered nurses to come to the rural areas. Recruitment is difficult. Uh, it, is, it is hard. And part of that is because we've turned ourselves into a casual workforce. And, you know, anybody coming out with four years of education, doesn't matter who you are, you cannot survive on just a casual position. So there has to be further conversation with good full-time very fulsome work for people who are willing to uproot themselves and come to a rural community. So, you know, there's all these things we have to look at and there has to be incentives once people do get here in the fact of professional development. There has to be looking at different things that happen. We have the, you know, the shock. Um, it is the shock when these young registered nurses come to you know, in my area of the world, it's, it's uh, you know, Arcola is, is a very active little small hospital with an emergency room that covers three reserves and two resorts. So it's, it's very busy. And, you know, if you put a brand new grad in there into an emergency room without the proper, uh, you know, staff component to, to um, support them, they're not going to stick around. They're going to say, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? This is scary. I am petrified and I'm not coming back here. I'm leaving. I'm going to end. And then oftentimes if it's that traumatic of an event, they leave the profession completely. So we have to make sure that there is the ability to be able to not have that kind of shock happen to these grads, which we hear lots uh, does happen. They're put into junior or put into where there needs to be a junior senior mix. And there has to be some job embeddedness where people want to stay, where they have those incentives, where they get, you know, the professional development. There is the support uh, there. So there's, you know, there's lots of things that we can work on and I'll leave it there. So lots of things to work on, not a huge policy focus and no frameworks to, to necessarily draw upon. Uh, Brian, what do you do as a leader? What, what, what are the levers that, that you pull and what do you see uh, from that perch? Well, let me start off by just thanking the Recovery Project for the wonderful work that they're doing. This is fantastic, and I'm honored to be here with you, Jody, and of course, Tom and, and Tracy as well. Let me just start off as well by, by maybe putting a little bit of the context of the backdrop in which we had this discussion. I mean, over the last few years, I think it's, anyway, from my point of view, become pretty evident that rural Canada, rural parts of the Western world are facing uh, immense challenges, and it's pretty multifaceted. Uh, people see traditional industries maybe being phased out, uh, if not abruptly ripped away from their communities. Uh, traditional jobs uh, through automation and AI are often leaving communities as well. You also have population challenges, whether it's populations that are declining or populations that are aging and often both at the same time. Uh, so this is the backdrop in which we had this discussion. And 
and what's what's difficult is with all of these elements it really makes for a, a recipe where people feel angry they feel they fe they fear the uh, future of their communities um, they and and rightfully so in a way because they certainly have reasons to uh, fret uh, what are the challenges that they're facing? But at the same time, they also unfortunately see some political leaders and other community leaders that are uh, using that fear and anger, uh, maybe for political gain or other other types of reasons. So um, the first comment I would made on, make on leadership is that we really need to have the best type of um, effort put in to have evidence-based discussions uh, to make sure that it's it's coming from a calm place, recognizing the very real challenges, many of them acute challenges for these communities, whether it's in healthcare or other aspects of their communities, uh, but but also making sure that we're uh, as as a group and as leaders trying to really have a fact-based discussion. I'll maybe make a quick comment on on what Tom mentioned goes to the question you asked, Jody, about leadership. There's no question that there's not a lot of dialogue happening around these questions and around this important matter. Um, especially considering how uh, significant it is. Uh, and, and I think there's a few reasons for that, but one that I can certainly maybe attest to is uh, you, as a political leader, as a community leader, I think you recognize how important healthcare really is to the community. It's important to every community, uh, but it has an added facet in rural communities where it's really sort of the hospital, the medical center, the school, the rec center that are the, the heart of, uh, of a community. So when you see one of those uh, potentially being weakened or leaving, it, it really has an emotional, can, you know, emotional reaction. And, and again, rightfully so. Um, so to, to Tom's point, I do think that, that there's not a lot of discussion happening. And I think it's because a lot of leaders are worried about having, you know, even opening up the conversation just because they recognize to what extent uh, there's emotional attachment to it. Um, so, so all of this and all the challenges I went through, it makes for that we're not having a lot of dialogue. So again, thank you for, for putting this on. Uh, it makes for people maybe a bit afraid to talk about it. Uh, it can lead to conversations that are not as fact-based, maybe a bit more emotional. Uh, and of course, we find the problems, uh, the demographic problems sort of putting itself into healthcare, where, as was mentioned by Tracy, we have a tough time with recruitment and retention of, of healthcare providers. Uh, we find ourselves maybe in rural uh, Canada with uh, a lack of the equipment that we would need and, and not a lot of hope that there's going to be investment in the infrastructure and equipment you need, very much the opposite, where people are always fearful that there'll be cuts. And I would also argue that there's also the challenge of volume, which uh, makes it difficult as well, that even if you do have a healthcare professional providing some type of maybe specialty or, or some other service, if they don't have the volume to keep up. Uh, because they're in a rural, remote, or northern community, that can make it difficult as well. Thank you. So, you know, speaking of evidence-based, you know, we do know that uh, health outcomes are poor in rural areas. Um, difficulties related to access may not come as a surprise, but, you know, all of the challenges that, that, that you've all discussed are also translating to poor outcomes, but not necessarily a lot of research. Tom, can you comment on this particular challenge with, you know, uh, poor health outcomes, yet not a lot of research to, to, to find the way, the pathways to improve uh, I'm not sure I would say there's not a lot of research. There's a lot of research going on in Saskatchewan. I'm the co-director of the Population Health and Evaluation Research Unit. We just launched a multi-year uh, look at interventions for people with dementia and their caregivers in rural communities. We've done 12 years of research on healthy aging in rural communities. 
so there, I think there is a lot of research and you th I think of people like Ray Pong in Ontario, who's done all sorts of stuff uh, in Northern Ontario and whatnot around rural, rural health issues. The challenge has been getting that policy into policymakers uh, and into policy. Um, and, and it's that, and I think, you know, Brian touched on this uh, quite well, and I think he's, he's quite right. There's a fear about doing that. Um, the irony I always point out is that, you know, I live in a province where the governing party not only has all of the seats in rural Saskatchewan, but is going to keep all of those seats in rural Saskatchewan uh, when we have an election in the fall. I don't think that's an outrageous prediction. And yet it has been unable and unwilling to have that conversation with rural Saskatchewan. Um, and I think Brian's right. There's an emotional element to this. You know, they've seen their post office go and their school close and all of those things and all of those things that define you as a community they see them crumbling away and they get very scared and, and whatnot. The other thing, and, and, and Tracy talked to this, is there is a willingness in rural Saskatchewan from what we found in our own work to have that conversation, but also there's a change in expectation. They know there's not gonna be a doctor anymore in every community. Um, and part of this is kind of a generational thing. Ideas around nurse practitioners and, and those kinds of practices Rural Saskatchewan is open to that if people will actually follow through and, and, and build it. The one other thing too, and again, to go back to health outcomes, this is linked across a number of policy areas that are not just health and healthcare. Saskatchewan, a couple of years ago, lost its intercity bus service. The government closed it. Transportation is a determinant of health. The rest of Canada lost Greyhound if you are in a rural community and you need to get to a center for care, you're not able to drive yourself or you shouldn't drive yourself because of the situation you're in. You, know, you have to rely sometimes on the kindness of strangers to get you to the care you need. And, and that's, you know, it's that interlinked element also of the policy questions that, that we've tended to ignore. And that explains, I think, some of the, you know, so some of the poor outcomes are also a result of other policy choices um, that governments have either made or not made. That's a really important point. Sometimes we get so narrowly focused on healthcare as hospitals and care providers, and of course, very critical, but you know, there are so many other policy levers that, that impact as well. Um, we have a question uh, from the audience that I wanna to put to both Tracy and Brian, uh, but I'll start with you, Tracy. So hearing about some of the hesitation or, or, or just the, the lack of action coming from policymakers, does technology offer an opportunity to you know, crack the barriers and, and get into this discussion? And are there some uh, good use cases out there that the audience should hear about? Well, I think that we need to actually broaden how we talk about it. Rather than calling it technology, let's call it innovation. Because innovation, is, it's bigger. We've been working lots uh, with um, the idea of innovation in Saskatchewan for the last three years, working with the Chamber of Commerce and, and different, uh, you know, educational institutions and, and all of those kinds of things with the First Nations communities. Because, you know, we've actually found that technology all on its own actually can, can be almost more of a hindrance than a help. So we look at it, you know, because technology can work or is it technology and, and the combination of human 
and, and humanity, because as a registered nurse and as, you know, physicians or healthcare providers, we know that, you know, we can't lose the human side of it. So, you know, technology has worked to be able to work, to have those remote conversations with people in, you know, in Northern Saskatchewan, where sometimes it is difficult to have, to be there as a person and to be able to, to see what's going on and to be able to assess that individual. So, you know, innovation is absolutely imperative if we want to be able to expand healthcare in Saskatchewan and across Canada. We have to be willing and open to look, to see what's in front of us, to be able to evaluate it properly and make sure that we, when we talk about innovation, we talk about technology, that all of the stakeholders that it's going to affect are at the table. We have to make sure that it's going to fit into into where it needs to be. And I mean, we think particularly about our First Nations communities in the North. It's absolutely imperative that they're at the table with us. They can tell us what we need. And then us in the South can try to figure out what kind of innovation that we can use to make sure that they're getting the health care that they require in a timely fashion. Really important reminder, Tracy, we're innovating for people, not, not for the sake of technology. Uh, Brian, you know, from, from your perspective, you know, could technology be a means of maybe overcoming some of the hesitation that, that, that we see around uh, the topic of rural health care? First, a few things. So I think um, Tom makes great points and, and it's, I mean, generally speaking, there's exceptions to what I'm about to say, of course, but studies would show that people in rural Canada will have uh, income disparity versus urban counterparts. Uh, they will be less likely to go to post-secondary education for a few reasons. One of them, even just the geographical fact that they're further away from these institutions. Uh, and that will lead to a sicker population or a population that might be more vulnerable health-wise, uh, an older population, as we discussed a while ago with the demographics. And then that obviously translates to a group that needs more primary health care. And what's ironic is that they actually have less access. So uh, it, it really is, when you think about it a bit, uh, perverse in the way that the, the, the system is structured. So to your point, yes, I think technology innovation has to play a role. And, and to have the conversation, whether it's about instituting technology and innovation or, or it's the points we were making a while ago about just leaders trying to, to, to guide this discussion, I, I think coming at it with the idea that this isn't about a financial question. I mean, that's a component, of course, of any discussion or any decision you have to make as a community, as a government, as a business, whatever the organization may be. Of course, it's a component, but it shouldn't be the frame in which you're talking about. And if you go to the communities, as Tracy mentioned, that in rural uh, Canada, especially for, for all of these sort of sensitivities that people have, because they've only seen cut after cut after cut, uh, if you go to them saying, look, this isn't about the finances, that's a component, of course, it will obviously be a part of our discussion. But the frame that we have right now is how do we improve healthcare delivery to Canadians living in rural parts of our country, remote parts of our country, northern parts of our country. And if they approach it with that, technology and innovation, in my opinion, will be no question one of the, the elements or the outcomes of that conversation. And, and I think it's, it's, um, there's still lots that have to happen. And it will be interesting because I think then you would see communities become a little hopeful because if that becomes the outcome of the conversation, then where does it need to go? It needs to go to, do rural communities have the infrastructure that they need? Do they have the broadband internet that they need? Uh, do they have the 
uh, cap capability as individuals and as a collective? And if not, how can we help them get that? How can we help support? So it actually becomes a pretty positive conversation where you're looking in to try to help the community be able to improve the collective healthcare that they receive instead of coming at it. And it's always like that, unfortunately. Again, to Tom's earlier point, the conversations are always come in. They always come in with the frame. Because of the finances, we need to have a talk about rural health care. Well, that's obviously when citizens, rightfully so, will get their backs up. So we're receiving lots of questions about telemedicine, and I'm wondering if this is a good time to kind of probe a little bit more deeply around te telemedicine, but maybe in the context of COVID-19 or just in general, is telemedicine a positive innovation or is it just a lesser means of delivering healthcare? Tom, do you have any thoughts on that specific question? I think one of the things that will come out of COVID-19 is that we're actually going to get some really good data and information about how well this works and how well it's received um, by, by, by people. Um, the first indications, for, at least from what I'm hearing, is that generally it's pretty well received for pretty basic kinds of interactions with health professionals. Again, to Brian's point, I, you know, one of the biggest challenges is the infrastructure to uh, to actually access telemedicine um, doesn't exist in a lot of rural and northern and remote uh, parts of uh, uh, of the country, or it's spotty and problematic. And you can't be innovative if the technology itself is also faulty. Um, and so that's where those two things that Tracy was talking about, I think, come together. Um, and so I think there are some 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 aspects. It, you know, the evidence seems to be that it's working in 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 urban centers reasonably well to replace uh, GP visits and the like. We know less about how well it's doing in rural and remote areas. One of the things I would say also is that you know we do know, and and again, plug one of my colleagues here at U of R. We've done some really interesting pioneering stuff on the provision of mental health. Uh, services via uh, these kinds of remote uh, and telemedicine vehicles. Uh, and that's proven actually to be really quite effective, getting mental health services into places where they're not um, readily available. Uh, but on the rural and, and remote side, a lot of it is going to depend on, on building that infrastructure. You know, when I, when we ended classes so abruptly in March at the university, I was surprised at how many of my students returned home to communities where all of a sudden I'm getting emails of, I don't have, I can't go on and, and listen to your lecture or participate in a discussion group and all of that because they simply didn't have access to uh, the, the infrastructure they needed. And that was an issue a long time ago in rural Saskatchewan about building that infrastructure. And we've lost that thread and and that conversation and i think covid19 has really highlighted that divide on that side of the issue tracy what has the covid19 experience been for nurses and i do want to get back to this very important issue of do we have the basic infrastructure to to really pursue this idea but but i would really love to hear what what the front line and on the ground experience ha has been for nurses it's been tough it's been frightening at times what we found in Saskatchewan was oftentimes there was uh, a lack of transparency with the employer and with the Ministry of Health of what was really happening around us. I mean, we have a lot of plans happening all at once. We're closing and reopening at the same time. 
which makes it extremely confusing and hard to manage um, for people. Um, we've been very lucky in Saskatchewan, knock on wood, that our, our actual presumptive and positive cases have been um, not as great as they could have been, even though we do have some outbreaks that are going, but it has been, it's been quite the experience. And, and what's been tough is, is trying to help people understand our, the residents, the citizens of Saskatchewan and what's in front of them. And I think, you know, we could talk about telemedicine and, and you know, the, the structure that's needed to be in there. But what we haven't ever done with telemedicine or with technology is actually talk to the people who are going to be as the consumer on the other side of the camera and understanding what it is now, how they're going to have to journey through a telemedicine visit and what that means for them and how they need to prepare and what the follow-up's going to look like. And I think a lot of times we talk, we talk a lot of fine games in Saskatchewan and I would wager probably across the country and, but we never ever quite get to that finish line or to the delivery where it seems like everybody is working in a very, in a very good uh, psychopathic way. And, and I guess that's where, that's where uh, as registered nurses, we're really seeing what, where the cracks are now that COVID's here. I mean, we could have an entire hour dedicated to how we're seeing where the cracks are in long-term care now, couldn't we? And that's across the country. So I think the other thing that it's shown is, is that you, we really see who actually uh, runs the healthcare system in this country. And it's, it's the essential workers. That's who does it. It's the registered nurses, the licensed practical nurses, the, um, you know, the, the housekeepers, the cooks, the people that are showing up there every day. And, and they, they, there's times when they get respect and times when they don't. And it has, I think there's a lot to be said about a debrief, you know, when this is over so that we can have the conversations. Because really, in Saskatchewan, we've been left out of any sort of really big conversation on how we're actually going to proceed forward with healthcare in this province because we do we do have a new normal as as much as that's become a buzzword that's almost becoming annoying truly it's just how we're going to have to proceed in the future normal or not i mean normal is different to everybody now isn't it so we're really going to have to uh you know we're really pushing to make sure that that the healthcare workers are at the table to talk about when we are thinking about reopening and what that's going to mean to our jobs and what that's going to mean to how we work on a day-to-day -day basis and how it is that we can help the residents of Saskatchewan, the patients that we looked after, because really that in the bottom, at the bottom of all of these discussions, that's really who we need to be focusing on, how they're going to be able to manage and navigate, you know, because if we're, if we're only going to try to piece together all of the old stuff that we know really hasn't worked and try to come up with a new puzzle out of that, we're probably not going to get that far and we're probably going to end up being frustrated and, and a year from now trying to have the same kind of discussion. I mean, we're looking towards a future where we can break out of the silos, where we don't have all of this bureaucracy, this unnecessary barriers in front of us to try to reach um, health care that is accessible to everybody. I mean, you know, we know that chronic health care is, is chronic disease management needs to be a focus. And those chronic diseases are, are, are big and wide and far. And we need to be able to figure out how we're going to manage through that. And, you know, and we talk about mental health and addictions. They've also become buzzwords. What are we going to do about those in, in the world as we progress forward? Because we really, we see all of these things that are happening in the rural area. And then if we get in, you know, we really want to dig down into mental health. You know, I have community mental health 
nurses who are set in the rural areas, who if one goes on vacation, the other one has a caseload in excess of 300 people. Well, that's not a good way to manage mental health, but it seems like we can only push, we only get so far and then we back away. And, you know, we talked, you know, Brian talked about the emotional part of it and, and being scared to have these conversations. Well, you know, we need to push that aside. We need to put that away and we need to have those conversations because what we're doing isn't working. There's people who are being left behind and it's the same people all the time that are being left behind and we keep putting fine words to it, but we're not, getting to that edge. We have to have the political will to have the conversations, but to have those conversations, let's start creating a uh, foundation where people aren't shocked when emergency rooms are closed. It caused a complete uproar that all of a sudden these emergency rooms are closed because we didn't have that transparency or conversation to help people understand how they're going to navigate the system and what this is going to mean to me. And that is really really how we need to be having these kinds of conversations, having the political will and strength to do it. And, we, you know, if we can, we can talk all we want until we're actually willing to do that and sit down at the table with all the stakeholders there and understand what their needs and wants are, respect them and move forward. Uh, we're going to be here again, you know, next year and the year after and the year after. So, you know, that's, that's really how we can, move forward is by being honest and transparent and building a foundation. As a person who's really mostly been involved in urban health care, but was involved during the time of SARS, I can tell you that new normal was also a phrase used uh, just after SARS. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask Brian. Brian, you know, we had a new normal past SARS, and then it ended up looking a lot like pre-SARS. How do we build the coalitions? How do we build the momentum um, around change. There's been some positive things that have happened during COVID that, you know, we might want to keep. Uh, there's obviously been some negative things, some exacerbations of problems mm. of the past that need to be addressed. How do we build these coalitions? How do we tee up politicians to take on what are scary and difficult policy choices and decisions? Well, often necessity is one of the best ways. Um, so let's take telemedicine we saw a huge propelling of telemedicine over the last few weeks out of necessity. Um, and, and people would have been discussing uh, some of the things that happened in some of the provinces. New Brunswick is an example. I know Nova Scotia and others have done this uh, on the East Coast uh, to allow for telemedicine to happen. The things that were needed um, were being discussed for a long time. And it took, unfortunately, something that was so acute and the necessity of the response of, uh, of COVID-19 to, to enable that. Now, with that said, um, I would think many would still argue there's discussions that need to happen. There's still issues with regulations, uh, compensation. So whether it be uh, electronic signatures, whether it be the idea of having some uh, telemedicine happening from uh, a doctor or, or, or a nurse practitioner or a healthcare provider from one province to the other, we have to have discussions on access, which we, uh, I think, elaborated on a while, a while ago with the infrastructure that would be needed for telemedicine to be, uh, to be utilized across the country, including in rural, remote, and Indigenous communities. Uh, we would also need to make sure that we keep the privacy and security of uh, people uh, safe while they are using uh, telemedicine. Now, whether telemedicine is going to be utilized more because of this, I think the answer is very clearly yes. I mean, for a few reasons, some of the regulations and changes that uh, I just enumerated have happened uh, 
um, maybe speedily and, and will have to be looked at again when uh, kind of things settle down. Uh, but also just if it, if it were just for the response to the next pandemic. I mean, as you mentioned, um, SARS to COVID to what's next. So I think we've all accepted that there's probably going to be another one uh, if, if not on COVID-19, sort of uh, having another uh, important spread over the next few months and what will be the next one after that. So even if it's just so we have a, an infrastructure to be able to get through these uh, tough situations, that'll be important. And for a few reasons, I mean, this is an experience probably like no other. I mean, SARS is, is certainly one that we can make some comparisons, but this is obviously uh, exasperated uh, in, in several other manners that uh, SARS maybe didn't. But, but with that said, I mean, people are going to now think about the response and recovery to next pandemics based on this. And I say that because if people feel like their health deteriorated, their healthcare services uh, were delayed too much, um, that's going to be a real problem for next time. It's going to make it more difficult for us to lock things down uh, in our response time, uh, the recovery will be longer from a healthcare point of view, which will have issues for productivity and, and in terms of the economic recovery as well. Uh, so I think we have to, as Tracy mentioned, no question learn from this situation. I think we then also need to look at telemedicine and what that can mean uh, for us moving forward. Um, but, but as we often say uh, on these webinars that we've been doing uh, a lot of and watching a lot of uh, over the last few weeks, COVID has certainly um, taught us some lessons, um, but, but I wouldn't say that it helped us identify problems because I think it just sort of put those problems on display. We, we really did know of these problems, but maybe we were ignoring them as a collective, as a society, or not giving enough attention. So it certainly has put some problems, I think, on display. And, and uh, you know, let's talk about another one in, in healthcare that affects rural communities. Um, the fact that there's not enough, not enough nursing home beds and the fact that we don't have enough investment in home care. Um, we saw very quickly, and I, and I say this very humbly because I think Saskatchewan would be an example of this, but we saw where there are uh, hospital beds now being used as ALCs. There were uh, here in New Brunswick, some people that had to be, um, you know, exported out of the hospital because they were using the beds as ALCs. And obviously, this is putting on display that that's not a good quality of care for those individuals. And why is it not a good quality of care? For many reasons, but because of COVID, they were actually being exposed potentially because they're in the hospital setting uh, to something that could uh, deteriorate their health. Um, and another thing I think we have to do, which again, Tracy has mentioned, uh, is enable other healthcare providers to be able to help. And that's gonna be important, I think, for healthcare in general, certainly going to be very important for healthcare in rural uh, Canada and as well if we're going to make telemedicine work we got to figure out who can be a part of that what type of uh, services can be best be done uh, and be done safely uh, and of course making sure that other healthcare providers are helping us do uh, do that so we can improve access again for everyone uh, including people in rural Canada. Ryan thanks so much so much great stuff in there um, but uh, Tracy I want to throw it back to you on uh, the question of uh, compensation because we actually have a question from Leah Stevenson about adapting compensation mechanisms for rural healthcare systems. What approaches have or could be taken in the future to both attract the talent that, that, that needs to be attracted and to uh, improve health outcomes overall? Well, I think that there's a lot of discussion that we can have. I mean, we, we advocate that healthcare workers need to be unionized. And that you that that is a, a conversation that you would have with your collective bargaining agreement. We think that 
you know, that needs to be, because what we're seeing too, what we saw, see a lot, not necessarily just in rural, but across the piece is in the long-term care setting where they aren't unionized is where they're having a, a lot of difficulties because people, uh, people aren't getting compensated properly and they were, they were leaving and, and those things were happening. But what, what some innovation that happened in, in my area of Saskatchewan is communities got together and they figured out what it is, what it was they could do together to figure out how to be able to compensate the physicians and, and figure out a way that they can have physicians in the community, more than one, because this is what was happening. Only one physician was available and it's not tenable for one person to try to manage a, a different, very, um, a whole bunch of different healthcare settings and healthcare communities and all of those kinds of things. So the innovation of being able to, to create these different coalitions where uh, funding could be made available through through rural municipalities, through through different town councils, through injections of money from the from the um, health authority, from the Ministry of Health. All of those kinds of things can be looked at, so that so that people can come and they can have a life. They can have a good working life, but they also can have the time off they need to be able to survive. Because that was a, that's a huge issue in rural Saskatchewan, is not being able for the physicians to have a life that that they don't become so overworked that they can't function and those these are all the kind of things that we need to have those bigger discussions those bigger community discussions on where we start to create that foundation so that people are attracted that's a big recruitment issue is to be able to make sure that that these physicians have a life the younger physicians coming out of of college aren't going to dedicate 24 7 365 to their job. They have a life, they have a family, and they want to be able to survive and enjoy their career. And if we are, if we are able to accommodate that, then that's a level that we're able to secure and have uh, in, in the rural areas. And that's, that's very, very important. And to help be able to create that foundation, to be able to bring the nurse practitioners and the advanced authorized practice in, and making sure that that you know, those are part of a collective bargaining agreement where there is that negotiation for the fair wage and compensation, where they have work schedules that they can have a life with and they can manage. And all of those things, if we're able to sit down and have those conversations, create those coalitions, that's what makes that work. Brian, I'm going to throw it back to you. You originally voiced a, a comment about compensation, and now I know we have this uh, great question from Leah. What has the New Brunswick experience been in terms of innovating around compensation models? Sometimes we think of innovation as you know solely confined uh, to the topic of delivery, but it can also uh, be focused on compensation. Let me say I'm not an expert in this stuff, but, but what I can say uh, is New Brunswick, the government has made some moves on this, but we also have billing numbers that are maybe a bit different in other uh, parts of the country. So the billing numbers means that it's basically absolutely connected to a community. It's to help rural communities make sure that they can get some of the healthcare professionals that they need. And often, as, as you may see in rural communities, somebody will start by going into that community, but then try to get to maybe one of the larger centers uh, within the quickest time frame possible. In terms of compensation here, they actually made it possible for people to do telemedicine. I don't understand uh, as much as uh, I'm sure everybody on this call, uh, including Tom and Tracy, but um, they only wanted people to, the family doctors and other doctors, to do uh, follow-up consults under that telemedicine 
uh, number. So the, the compensation would be fairly similar, um, well, would be similar with, with the, um, the caveat that it could only be a follow-up. So the initial, uh, the initial consult had to be done in person. The other aspect that I've heard a few doctors uh, lament about is there's no admin uh, there's no admin possibilities within those compensation numbers, uh, which again, practically speaking, I'm not exactly sure how that makes it more difficult, but I can tell you that they would certainly argue that it does. There are obviously, I think, um, some good attempts by the by the government here in New Brunswick to try to quickly get a bit of a policy out. It's unfortunate, going back to what we mentioned a while ago, Jody, that it's sort of out of necessity because had we thought about this stuff before, everything would be so much calmer. We would have had it in place right away. We wouldn't be making some of the mistakes that we're probably making, which are uh, unfortunately could have been uh, avoided had we sort of thought of this when, when things were a bit calmer. So it, it is what it is. Often um, policy is made as a reaction to something. And I think we see all governments uh, probably across the world, but certainly here in Canada, doing exactly that. Um, and, and I just want to add to, to something that Tracy said, which I think is, uh, is, is really important. I mean, there's no question um, from, from the point of view that I had over the last few years that family doctors especially, but doctors, healthcare provi providers in general, all want to have a different type of quality of life and work-life balance than we may have seen in the past. And that's a huge uh, component of the recruitment and retention. Uh, because you may still convince them to come in, but they may find themselves leaving because they're just not getting the type of, uh, of work-life balance they would want. Now, I think I think all healthcare providers would have uh, from from different regions would have these challenges and would have things that have to be addressed. I think in rural Canada, Tracy makes a great point in the sense that they're so dependent on a few healthcare providers that that it's hard to take vacation. It's hard to be able to to maybe step away for a little while. And just imagine that during COVID. Um, imagine if somebody unfortunately uh, had to self-isolate as a healthcare provider in a small rural community, uh, it, it would make it incredibly difficult. So it's not something that we're surprised to hear, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly something that uh, we, we were aware of that is being put on display again because of COVID-19. Tom, uh, it's so good to, to still have you. I thought we lost you there for a moment. You did lose me briefly. I, uh, <laughs> I lost uh, the last bit of Brian's uh, comments, but I, but I, but I got back in. I didn't <laughs> say anything good. Don't worry. <laughs> Tom, I did want to give you an opportunity. Did you want to jump in on this compensation conversation? Just really quickly on this. It's, it's funny. It, 20 years ago, I was part of the team of the, on the Romano commission. And one of the things I got in the mail from an old colleague was a document from the 1960s when they were creating Medicare talking about how we absolutely have to get doctors off of fee-for-service. Uh, and this was a submission. Uh, and of course, this became an issue with us at, at, at Romano. This is bedeviled provincial healthcare systems from the very beginning. And I think everybody would, you know, fee-for-service and the general, that old-fashioned way of doing it doesn't work well um in in most cases and it doesn't work well in rural areas in particular and we really do need new models of compensation the other thing i would say is that things like covid and sars and the like in in policy terms we talk about them opening windows of opportunity but those windows don't stay open for long and there will be opportunities to make sort of significant changes but we really don't know how long we will have 
before our attention turns to 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 something else. Um, but physician compensation has bedeviled us from from the beginning of Medicare, um, and and it really does have to become a focus of of how we're going to move forward. Um, is 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 moving more and more. Uh, especially family docs off of uh, fee-for-service payments. Fee-for-service healthcare providers have been quite devastated yeah. by COVID-19, yes. right? Yeah. You know, uh, it's just it's just not functional during uh, a pandemic when you have to limit uh, visits. Yeah, nothing nothing screams build a capitation model more than something like this. That's right. I know there's a, a listener who who'd be happy to hear you mention capitation. There was a, there there was a question about that. So I'm a fan uh, of that. so anyway. Uh, <laughs> okay, so so we don't have too much more time uh, left, and I I don't want to end this discussion without getting uh, getting a little bit more deeply into uh, the topic of mental health. There is no health uh, without mental health, and Tom, I'm wondering if you can give us um, some context setting about mental health in a rural setting and uh, what care looks like and what it could look like uh, um, in the future. Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest things, and I think one of the things that we've discovered with COVID, it's in particular, it's around around the social isolation of, uh, of people in rural communities, especially older adults in, in rural communities who may already have limited social contacts because of their age, because of frailties, because of their living in very small places, their family is distant and the like. That has all just been heightened by the requirement to stay home and not have family visit and, and, and the like. And you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning about our, our dementia uh, project and work here. And that's where it's really focused. The goal of that project is about reducing the social isolation of older adults. In particular, our focus is on, on people with dementia. But this is, this is true, I think, as a, as a sort of a general proposition. And again, one of the challenges has been accessing mental health services um, has been, um, you know, there are just huge barriers there. I, I think what we what we really do need is to begin to build those interventions and those solutions in those communities and to find ways to provide communities with those resources so that they can design the interventions that will work for themselves. Um, and again, it goes back to some of the stuff we talked about, Tracy mentioned it, Brian mentioned it. It's about actually seriously engaging in real conversations with those communities about what are your needs and how do you think we can meet them and let's take the best evidence we have um, you know there's a lot of stuff going on in rural research across the world and a lot of stuff around social isolation and mental health in rural communities um, but we're not picking it up and we're not actually trying to translate it into into concrete interventions um, uh, you know, in the here and now. It, it sits in academic journals that people like like me read, uh, and uh, it, 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 it rarely makes it into the conversation with policymakers. Tracy, can I invite you to uh, pivot off of Tom's uh, response there? You know, we talk about this a lot, that the next pandemic, the next wave is actually going to be the uptake of mental illness. It's going to be PTSD. Uh, the, the trauma, the, the mental trauma that people have gone through because of COVID-19. 
because so much of our societal norms we haven't been able to around death and dying in particular we have not been able to be with our loved ones when they pass away and or or conduct the funerals that is so much a part of our our, our social norms about uh, being able to do that and you know in the position that i'm so blessed to be in as the president of sun i get people from all over members and people from the public who phone and just are they are just heartbroken that they're not haven't been able to go and visit people in the in the hospital in fact just yesterday a member of the community came and you know was telling me about her mother's health crisis that's happened she was allowed to be in there for 15 minutes and then had to leave and you know it's caused trauma deeper than i think we can even imagine and we're going to start seeing the effects of that as time moves on. And when we think of health, mental health, you know, in Saskatchewan, and I would say across the country right now, it's 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 underfunded. It's under everything. <laughs> there isn't enough access. There isn't enough professionals in place. There isn't enough beds. There aren't enough anything. And it seems to be one of the first things that we manage to sweep away when we start talking about, you know, we make a lot of promises during the political cycle, let's say, and oftentimes those don't come to fruition. It seems to be one of the first things that we're able to just sort of shelve and not talk about. And we're, we've got our backs against the wall now with COVID-19 and we have no choice but to talk about it. We see mental health and addictions on the rise. I mean, we see, we, we, we just see it all over the place with, you know, youth suicides and all the things that are happening and then compound that in the rural areas where, you know, there, there is no longer transportation. Uh, if you don't have a car, you're, you're in a real world of hurt. If you're already isolated to begin with, if your community mental health provider can only speak to you over telehealth or over Zoom, it's very difficult when, you know, it, mental health is so nuanced and you need to be able as a healthcare provider to be able to actually see body movements and all of these kinds of things. And I think the respect that mental health uh, care uh, requires it's come before us we're going to have to bear that now and we're going to have to be able to provide people with what they need and you know we often talk about you know the ex how expensive healthcare is it's going to become more and more expensive if we don't actually sit down and have those crucial conversations i mean one visit to the emergency room is 20 you know can be in excess of $25,000 if we're not going to start figuring out how it is that we're going to help these people so that there isn't this constant emergency room visits. If we don't create a primary healthcare system that includes a very concrete action on mental health and addictions, we're going to keep seeing this. And, you know, now on all of these other layers of trauma that we have going on because of COVID-19, you know, there's lots of things that we need to be able to deal with. And, and Tom's right, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of studying done. And, you know, it, research and evidence is absolutely imperative. But if we actually pay attention to what's been done and read what's been done and actually follow through on it and actually start to create what we need, we have studied some things so much that we can't, we don't need to study them anymore. Let's stop with the studying, how about? And how about we listen to the people that actually do the work? Let's start listening to the providers that are out there, the healthcare professionals that have years of experience and years of knowledge that would be able to help any government, and I don't care what your political strife is, create a very concrete plan on how to move forward with mental health and addictions. 
Thank you, Tracy. Brian, I have to turn to you and you'll end up having uh, the last word in all this. Really appreciate Tracy's perspective. And, you know, also just want to call out, um, building on what Tracy said, so many families have been separated from ill family members, uh, which is so difficult. Difficult from a trauma perspective, uh, but also difficult from a good outcomes. We need families present in, so that they are part of the team to really drive positive outcomes. So when we think about rural healthcare, when we think of the challenges that lie ahead of us, and we know that they're economic as well as health challenges, what does a leader do and how do they bring patients into the conversations, providers, and leverage the things we already know to work in the face of so many obstacles? I want to just talk about what Tom mentioned about uh, social connections. I mean, it, it has an, an impact on our mental health and studies would show it, it also has an impact on our physical health. Uh, and, and I'm reminded of a, of a kind of acute comment that was made during a very difficult time in New Brunswick with uh, the ice storms that we had a few years back, the largest, most significant uh, ice storm in, in, in the history of, of being recorded uh, in, in our province. And uh, one, one senior, when asked uh, how she was doing without her power and the community didn't have power for, for a few days. Uh, she sort of said, uh, well, I hope they don't put the power back on too soon because I've never had so many people visit. Um, so it, uh, it reminds us how important uh, social connection really is. I mean, obviously she was joking. I'm sure she would have liked to have both, but, uh, but it, I think it, it, it puts in perspective for, for many in our communities, especially in rural Canada, for all the reasons Tom mentioned, how important that is. Um, and I would just add one last thing to, to what Tom mentioned about um, about having the supports in rural communities. Uh, we were very proud of a program that we implemented, uh, that we scaled up, uh, it was implemented before our time, uh, called the uh, IISD, and essentially it was a very uh, multifaceted approach to mental health uh, and addictions for, for children and youth. It is a program that has worked very well, uh, very well received, where we have all the, the social support, all the professional support, uh, come into one room to help the child, to help the youth be able to ensure that they have uh, all the support that they need. So um, I would also add that having that approach in rural Canada, I think, is maybe even more feasible than than in urban. So maybe that would be one way in which we can improve uh, improve things. And uh, another comment that, that maybe we haven't talked about uh, enough because there's so much to talk about is Indigenous communities. All the things that we have talked about in terms of challenges for rural Canada apply to Indigenous communities and then some. Um, and, and we talk about COVID, uh, main thing about COVID that people were told were to wash your hands. Well, in how many Indigenous communities, they don't even have clean water. Um, there was already a disproportionate amount of infectious diseases amongst First Nation Indigenous communities across the country. A lot of it, I'm sure, is attributed to many things, but including uh, their dwellings being over capacity. Uh, so we talk about things like housing having an impact and the infrastructure you may need, uh, transportation, as uh, Tom had mentioned as well, for many of the northern, remote, and rural and indigenous communities. Um, and specifically to your question, I think I think that there's no there's no um, doubt that there is a window right now, and and I'm a bit nervous about it um, because this window that we have is um, I think very capable of going one way or the other. Uh, it, it really is a moment in time where everything has been intensified. We have all seen challenges within our societies, uh, whether it's income inequality, whether it's uh, gender inequality, whether it's 
uh, the, the fact that we're all so interlinked with pandemics or climate change. We have a moment in time right now that we can really create a new normal. Things are going to change. And like I said, we're at a pivot point where some of the maybe more, what I would judge more negative trends will be amplified instead of some of the things that could really uplift our communities and our citizens and our collectives. So I really hope that leaders are going to step up because this is really when you need leadership. Uh, you need people to put things in perspective, talk about hope, talk about how we can do this together, how we can, as was mentioned many times by Tracy and others, really have a robust dialogue to figure this out together. And I think that's the role of leaders and we, we desperately need them now more than ever as we're at this crossroads with the window of opportunity to make real changes Tom described a while ago. Thank you so much to all of you, to our panelists and to everyone in the audience for your great questions and your engagement. Please go to recoveryproject.org to learn about the future discussions that we are planning and to see how you can get involved. Thank you so much. This was a really important topic and really well canvassed by all of you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jody. Thanks, everyone.